0: Church. I want to welcome all of you here, um, and I want to invite you back tonight. There's activities going on here tonight. Uh, the youth group has got a devotional planned here tonight, and um, at that's at 6 p.m. At 6 p.m. also, I've had a lot of the people in our uh, class that meets in here tell me that I need to encourage others to show up. I guess they like it that much, and uh, it's called Basic, and it has to do with the things that Every Christian ought to know, and um, I encourage you to come, and don't worry if you think, well, I've missed out on some of it, don't worry, just, just come on in, you'll, you'll be able to pick it up, and the rest of it's on the podcast, but, uh, you know, there's, I, I looked, uh, if you're worried about the weather, I checked the uh, report, and it says, in fact, there's going to be two hours of sunshine at four and five, uh, it, it did, it had a little sun had a little picture of a sun right there. Now, that sunshine is only going to be right up here in this area, okay? So you have to, if you want to see it, you have to drive up here. Yep, that's how that works. Last week, we started talking about victory. And um, that what we're talking about is we're talking about a victory that God has achieved that we get to participate in. Uh, for the last two weeks, I, I've been blessed to be a part of a, a trivia team, and uh, two different trivia teams. Last night, we were playing for Union Christian Academy. Two weeks ago, uh, Dave Cogswell brought me in on his team at uh, for the for the Special Olympics, and you know, I um, I only had one contribution on that team. Uh, I, I knew the name of the first James Bond movie. And uh, and that was it. I was absolutely certain. And um, my misspent youth was paying off finally. I was able to contribute something with all those hours I wasted watching movies as a teenager. This week, different team. Joyce Chadwell knows how to put together a team. She did it again. She gets all the best. She's the person in uh, in the museum heist movie who gets all the talent together. And says, we're going to pull off a caper. And, uh, and so she had all the right people. Uh, John Keller just cleared the basketball uh, uh, category. And uh, I think I had one contribution again, a James Bond movie. I don't know, but it was fun. It was great fun. But here's the thing. Everybody does like me. They want to talk about, well, did I make a difference? Was I there? Was I not there? It doesn't matter. You were there. You share in the victory. If you were on the team, you share in the victory. It's not about who contributed what. Folks, when we're talking about the victory that God won for us, we are all sharers in that victory. We don't contribute much to it at all. We just show up at the table. We show up at the game. We show up and we receive the rewards of victory that God won for us through Jesus Christ—that's going to come up today in the text. But to remind you of, of last week's text, it, it's a very simple one sentence from First John three eight that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. You know, sometimes we make uh, Satan out to be this um, this this real threat, almost like a rival god, like you don't know who's going to win when it comes to God and Satan. And I think sometimes we give Satan too much credit. Now I'm not saying that you and I shouldn't uh, lose our vigilance when it comes to Satan and what he does. I'm not saying that you and I should be careless. Scripture tells us to resist him, and he will flee. But do we ever put up a resistance? Or do we just tremble in fear? Scripture also makes it clear that the purpose of Jesus doing what he did, going to the cross, uh, teaching the way he taught, the, 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 the way he was born, the incarnation, everything that it represented, all of that, even to the resurrection, all of that wrapped up together was about destroying Satan's work. There's no contest. Satan is doomed. And, 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 but for us to worry that somehow he could win out over God is to worry about the wrong thing. What we need to do is we need to make sure that we show up on the side of the one who destroyed the devil's work. We need to make sure that we're always showing up right there on the same team as our champion, Jesus Christ. As long as we are right there on his side, we have nothing to worry about. He's got this. And what God did, the works that he did in Jesus Christ, truly made history. This is one of the uh, most cliched terms, I think, in, uh, in, in, our, in our culture today is making history. Uh, history in the making. Everything is history in the making. Have you noticed that? Everything. And it always has to do with trying to sell you something. I remember that before we got streaming and TV on demand, every single thing on television was going to be a history-making event. Yeah. It was everything. Now, you could argue that in July of 1969, tuning into your television set and watching people from the planet earth land on the moon that was definitely history in the making but the next thing you know in the la- in the next 10 years then it was like hey guess what we're going to have all these celebrities from the three networks get together and play tug of war on the Pepperdine campus it's the battle of the network stars it's history in the making no it's not it's bad television uh, it's cheap so we we overdo that we overdo that but when you stop and think about the events that truly are history making events there's not that many there's things we can remember there's trivia there's things you can search for but the things of real significance are those things that if they are the things that if they did not happen then the world would be very different today If God had not done what he had done through Jesus Christ on the cross, then not only our world and our life, but the universe would be very different than what it is. That's how significant that is. And it is an event that happens in history. The the crucifixion of Jesus on one level was not uh, something that people had to ask themselves: Okay, this has never happened before. So, how do we do this? The Roman Empire knew how to do crucifixions. For the soldiers that that carried out the crucifixions, it was a day in the office. For the crowds that gathered to watch the execution, it was a public spectacle. Sometime, if you want to, uh, you know, if you want to um, strengthen your faith and think about these things and consider what it's like. Go down to the Fort Smith historic site and go and see the gallows. You might be asking yourself, what what does that have to do with crucifixion? Notice that the gallows are designed where there can be a crowd for public viewing. Why is that? What is it about execution that seems to demand a crowd? That's not the way it is anymore, but There's the idea that this needs to be put on display To deter other people from committing crimes And I think there's always been A certain element of humiliation and shame In that by doing an execution The community of people there are saying We win and evil loses That's very much how the Romans thought about it The victims of crucifixion were stripped naked and put on public display while they were slowly tortured to death so that they would serve as a spectacle and as an example. And these crucifixions happened in a place where people would see it, where it was highly visible. Now, that's not accidental and this all works into God's work. It's the nature of This most violent and shameful form of punishment. And yet, Paul, when he writes to the Colossians, uses the language of crucifixion. But transforms it into victory. And yet, it's not the crucifixion and the shaming and the humiliation of Jesus that he focuses on. It's the humiliation, the shaming, and the exposing of the powers. Those forces that represent evil at work in this world. I want to read to you from Colossians 2. This is Colossians 2, verses 12 through 15. It has something to do with baptism, but it also has something to do with victory in Jesus through the cross and God's atonement. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling The record of charges that stood against us. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He exposed the rulers and authorities and put them into open shame by leading them in a triumphal procession. Now this is a hard scripture to just find a place to jump right into because all through chapter two and really the whole letter, Paul is just going from one thought to the next, from one thought to the next. He's going back. ...over uh, old forms of of religiosity like circumcision... ...and telling them that they don't have to submit to those outward uh, forms of religion and legalism... ...that that's not what makes them holy, but it's the work of God, not their work that matters. And so he's going through all of this and he says that we were baptized... ...that baptism is not a work that we do, but baptism is something that God does to us. Baptism is always in the passive sense... And in fact, it's a victory that we share in, and all we have to do is show up. We have to be there. You know? it's sort of like um, back in November, my, uh, my father had open heart surgery. Um, he, had, he had two contributions to that open heart surgery. One, he had a heart attack. Two, he showed up. Other than that, all the rest of the work is done to him. Okay, now that's in a you know not a perfect analogy, but the idea is that in baptism we are surrendering and submitting ourselves to God's work in us, uh, God's work in the cross. Uh, notice that back in uh, verses uh, twelve it says. Our faith or our trust in the powerful working of God. That word working uh, is the same word that that we get energy from. God's working, his power. He's doing something. And he's doing this in this cross. Now, there are there are three things that happen in all of this. And you you can see this by tracking the verbs. Just follow the verbs. There are three things that represent victory over the powers. And again, those powers and principalities, those authorities and those rulers, he, he's not talking about senators and congressmen and governors and presidents. It includes that, but it's not limited to that. It has to do with every force, every idea, every cultural stronghold, every cultural influence that is bigger than all of us, and yet all of that has to be humbled And submitted to Christ as the king of kings, as the prince of peace. Because otherwise, those things have a tendency to do like us and get away from God. And they become corrupt and sinful. But when these things are submitted to him, then it changes. Which, by the way, the idea of a Roman empire that was going to dominate the world... And use crucifixion to bring peace to the world? Tell me that there's not some sin wrapped up in that idea. We'll bring peace to the world by humiliating people and making them endure excruciating torture. Which, by the way, the word excruciating comes from the cross. Think about the word. It has the word cross in it. There's three things that happen here. Where there is a victory over the powers because of what God was doing in Jesus. First of all, he disarms them. He exposes them. This is the language of crucifixion where the one being crucified is is stripped naked and exposed. You don't go to the crucifixion in your battle gear. You don't go to the crucifixion with uh, with your Kevlar vest armed with your sword or your pistol. No. They have taken all of that away from you. They have rendered you powerless. They being the forces that want to turn you into meat hanging on a pole. Here, it's Christ who has disarmed and exposed the pretentious powers that pretend That they are in charge. They're revealed for who they are. The hypocrisy. The violence. The evil. It's all been exposed. And here's how. The fact that Christ should be crucified. As as the Roman soldier who who put him there says in Mark's gospel. Surely this man was a son of God. This soldier, for him, this is a day in the office. He's not a particularly pious man, is he? I mean, he's done this. He's seen this. You become jaded after a while. And yet he witnesses in the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, he witnesses that this man was different. The signs, the way it affects nature, the way it influences the whole cosmos and there's darkness in the sky. He had to recognize there's something different. That's the power of the empire being exposed and disarmed. That's the work of the devil being destroyed. Second thing that happens, again, this is language of crucifixion, but it's turned around and applied to the evil one. He is shamed. He is humiliated. Sometimes when we dwell on crucifixion, maybe we're, thinking about it during the communion, maybe we're thinking about it for our Bible study and devotional, and I think it's a good thing to to pray through that and to try our best to imagine that. We've, we've I don't think any of us have ever seen an actual crucifixion, and I, I wouldn't recommend that we do, but we have to think about what's going on there. But keep in mind, it's not just about the pain and the gore. It's also about the shame of you know, sometimes that shame can be harder to deal with than the pain. You you, you know, pain. you know, if So if if somebody says, "Look, you know, we're gonna we're gonna beat you up for a while, but then this whole thing is over. But we're gonna do it in secret, and nobody's gonna know about it." Some of us might take the beating rather than have to put up with the shame. Some of us might be willing to lose a few teeth or carry around some bruises than to have our name in the paper. I mean. That's the dangerous, horrible nature of shame, is that we don't know how to get rid of it. It, ca- it. it hangs around on us, and we're powerless to get rid of it. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that we confess our sins. And I don't just mean publicly here, but to one another. Not so we can be forgiven, but as James says, we confess our sins so that we might be healed. Healed. Once we get rid of that shame, then we are free to live life the way God intended it to be. Jesus Christ is hung on the cross, and like every other crucifixion, it is meant to... They're saying, not only are we going to... I mean, you could have executed him in any way. There were noble executions. There were were executions that were considered humane. But why do it like this? Because they're wanting to say, not only are we killing you, but we're killing your movement. We're killing your followers. We're shaming your family. No one is going to back you ever again. There's going to be so much scandal hanging on you and on your memory. And yet, that's exactly what does not happen because of what God is doing. That the shame backfired on the powers and principalities. The shame backfired. Jesus Christ was not done. But God, through the resurrection, says, no, no, you don't get the last word. Shame doesn't get the last word. In fact, my stamp of validation is on my son who lives again. And he trusted himself to his heavenly father. The shame and the humiliation is for those rulers and authorities. You know, when we stop and think, you know, who was, who's responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus? Is it the Jewish leaders? Is it Pilate? Is it the crowd? Well, the answer is it's all the above. And yet it's also you and I, and it's every human institution that we make. And whenever we think that we're so brilliant and wonderful that we're going to fix the world, sometimes we make scapegoats out of the people who least deserve it. And that, that's exactly what the people of God did at the crucifixion of Jesus. But they were the ones put to open humiliation and shame. On the day of Pentecost, and you can read this in Acts chapter 2, if you read Acts chapter 2 and you read what Peter preaches... Peter says to them, listen, the Messiah did show up, and it was Jesus of Nazareth. And the people are so upset because they think, oh, no, God sent his hero to save us, our champion, and we killed him. And that's when Peter says, wait, wait, you haven't heard the whole story yet. And he calls upon them to repent, to change their ways, to be baptized into Christ. In other words, you think you killed him, but actually... He is risen, and now if you will participate in his death, you will be saved. Hey, how about that? What they thought was the end for them actually became a new beginning. But they had to be shamed and humiliated themselves into receiving that. The third thing that happens over the powers is there's this language of a triumph parade. Um... So, uh, you know, there's a lot of terms in here that maybe don't speak to us. And so I'm going don't, to, I don't want this to be the kind of thing where you leave here today and said, man, that was just way over my head. That was all way over my head. All right, well, let me try to get this where you'll understand it. What is a triumph parade? It's spiking the football. Does that speak to you? Do, do you understand that? That's the victory dance, Okay. The official parade was you. You have your conquering hero who returns, and there's a big celebration. But now this isn't just uh, like uh, guys, you know, going down the the uh, the avenue in the back of a car, a convertible that's been donated by some local dealer, and they're waving. And there's ticker tape, and there's a band playing, and all that. No, this is bringing out all the forces of war. If you ever watch on. Uh, the news when you see the uh, leaders of places like, like North Korea or the Soviet Union, you know, back in the day or, you know, and they bring out all of their tanks and missiles. Why? Because we're showing off. We're showing off. Here are our weapons. Now, the Romans would take it one step further and whoever they had conquered, they chain them up and they drag them along. This is the sort of triumph that the powers and the rulers had in mind when they were trying to put an end to this movement of Jesus that they saw rebellious. Instead, through the cross, through the resurrection, what God does, Jesus takes the powers of the evil one. He puts them in chains and he leads them after him. They've been Subdued. In fact, they've been enslaved. The people in Colossae would have understood this because that is the sort of thing that happened to many of them. Their lands were conquered. So Paul is turning that language around and he's saying, No, you're not the slaves. You're not the ones that were conquered. Evil. That's what was conquered by Jesus Christ. Three things, the victories over the power. Now, real quick, three things which are the victory with us. This is how you and I share in that victory. I just told you what Jesus did. I told you what God did through Jesus on the cross. Here's the three things that that means for us. This is us walking away with the reward that we didn't earn. We just showed up. It's all right there in Colossians. Follow the verbs again. He says the trespasses, our trespasses, our mistakes, our failures, our sins, forgiven. Forgiven doesn't just mean, uh, oh God, I'm sorry, hey, it's all good, we're fine now, okay, you know, I mean, we we don't just send out a text to God, say, are we good, we're good, it's more than that. Forgiven means that God lets it go. He says, the only way I'm going to have relationship with all of you (coughs) is that all of these trespasses and and sins and failures that you've been a part of, I'm just going to have to let the whole thing go, and in fact, God, and we'll talk about this in, in, uh, in the weeks ahead, God even says, I'm going to clear the slate. I'm going to balance the books on this. I'm going to get rid of the records. And yet some of that is said right here in this verse because the other thing that he does is he takes the accusations against us and cancels them. Satan means the accuser. And Satan is the one that accuses you before God, saying, reminding God of all of the ways that you are God's enemy and all of the ways that you and I and our humanity and our world pose a threat to God. And God has decided to step up off the throne and tell the accuser, I've had enough of you, and I'm accusing you from now on. All of their accusations are canceled. That's grace. That's grace. Now, I don't mean to say that that's light or easy. But I will tell you one thing that we need to start doing as individuals, as a church, as a people. If God has canceled the accusations that stand against us, we need to stop bringing them back up. When you consider everything that he's done, do you think that you and I are doing any favors to ourselves? Are we pleasing God by constantly reminding him of everything we've done wrong? No. That's not what he wants. He did this so that there might be new life. The third thing is this interesting language of the record that stands against us. The public accusation. It's been nailed to the cross. Again, this is the language of crucifixion. You know, every time you crucify someone, you've got to put something up there that says, okay, this is what they're guilty for. This is what they're guilty for. You know, you, th- this one's a thief. This one's a bandit. This one's a rebel. This one's a murderer. Whatever it is, put their crime on them. That's part of the shame. Jesus had a sign nailed to his cross. It said... Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Said it in three different languages. Now, it was meant to be a joke. It was meant to be a mocking statement that that this poor carpenter from the backwoods of Nazareth claimed to be the king of the Jews. Now, isn't that a laugh? That's what it was meant to be. And this is how the powers got exposed And got humiliated because it turned out to be true. Very true. More true than they could even realize. It was so true that it was woven into the fabric of the universe. Here Paul's saying that the records, you know, whatever it might be against us, that was written against us, it's it's nailed to the cross. It's put away. And here's the thing. Jesus... Is no longer on the cross. He was. But he's no longer there. That got left behind. We are to take up our cross and follow him. But that cross. That cross is not going to be with us forever. And taking up his cross and following him. Is different than the cross of accusation. The cross of shame. All of this has been transformed. And there's one reason why this has all been changed. Is so that you and I might live a different kind of life. When those three things happen with us, then we share in the victory. In fact, the word used there, you'll remember I said that the works of God, the word being used there is energy. Well, you read in in Colossians, and and by the way, here's what this means. You read Colossians 2.12. And with him you were raised to new life, because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. Okay. Now in three one, we're told what that means. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ. Hey, wait, when did that happen? Go back to two twelve. When you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. In other words, when you surrendered yourself, when you got buried in the water of baptism. When you were raised up out of baptism. Those of us who were at the uh, event in Little Rock a couple of weeks ago, Jonathan Stormit made a very good point. He said, you know, we, there's a reason we don't leave you down in the water. Because there's more than just killing your sins. We want you to, to live a new kind of life. Uh, that, and it would be quite illegal. But the... Uh, when you get to 3.1, you find out that since we've been raised to new life with Christ, now we set our sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. When you realize this, everything's been changed. History has been made through what God did, what God did through Jesus on the cross. You and I cannot see the world the same way ever again, and we shouldn't. Now, what's interesting here is in English where we see that raised with, raised with, it's two words in English. It's one word in Greek. That one word is synergy. Synergy. You've been raised with. In other words, the work that he did in Christ is also then the work that he's doing in us. And when we trust in him, we're being swept up in his victory. And it's all for this reason. Because God is making us alive with Christ, you know it, it i I regret that I've spent so many years of my own life worrying about and preaching that Salvation works only in these circumstances, not in these circumstances. It's good here. It's not good here. You've got to do this. You can't do this. When it's so clear and plain right there. If you trust in him, if you're buried with him in baptism, he does the saving. He does the new life. You and I have to surrender to it. Now that's basic. And God is wanting to do this. It's not some trick that we play with God where we say, Aha, <clears throat> we know how to take care of things in the heavenly office so that we will be okay when we die. Now, you can live your life and you can do whatever you want. But we want to make sure that you're going through the right, on the right set of escalators when you die. You want to go to the up, not the down. And so here's how you do it. A few little procedures you have to do here. And I'm going to tell you the right way and don't do it this way. And that's completely missing the point. The point right now is, okay, just for a second, don't think about the day of judgment. Think about the right here and right now. That you and I, if we have not surrendered to God, we are dead now in our sins. Not just dead on the day in judgment, but we are dead now. We are living according to the powers and the principalities and the evil, corrupt ways of this world. We're trapped in it. But when we're buried with Christ, God turns things around, and we died to that old way. we, we, We got out. We escaped. And then we're raised up with him. It's synergy. We're raised up with him and made alive just as he was made alive on the day of resurrection. Right now you might be thinking, wow, I don't know. This is a lot to take in. I don't know that I understand it all. No, you probably don't. Neither do I. But can you trust in the one who can make us alive with Christ? If you can do that, then you're on the right, you're on the right side of things. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would work in our lives. To teach us what it means to set our minds on things above. To look up out of this world that's so burdened by the ways of death and the ways of sin and the the ways of worry and anxiety. And Father, you have taken all those powers and forces and all of those uh, cultural structures that keep us burdened down you've exposed them, you have humiliated, you have you have taken away their power and led them in triumphal procession. Father, we want to get up and ride in the chariot with you. We want to live the new life. We want to be raised with you to new life, even today. Father, if there's anybody here who needs to surrender to you in baptism, I pray that they'll have the courage to do so and not worry about what that means, but worry more about about experiencing new life. Father, teach us to be obedient today, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.